and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Scott Nye. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. You usually don't uh, leave the space. You usually just launch right into it. I've been waiting oh, for I guess, the I, you know, I did the opportunity Tyler. to say, yeah, yeah. I know. I, I've been waiting for that opportunity this that. whole time. Yeah. And now finally I, I have it and I, uh, I spaced. Um, but uh, no, thank, thank you for listening. Uh, David, how yes. you doing? Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm like uh, trepidatious about, um, I guess, but by the time you're hearing this, I'm probably back from Toronto or still in Toronto. But um, I'm when getting ready back? to head up to Toronto. I come back uh, Monday evening. Um, so if I get my shit together yeah. to schedule this to post Sunday night, like I and normally would. And we have would, very attentive on- listeners. Okay. Yeah. Otherwise, I will just post it when I get home on monday um anyway i'm heading off to toronto uh i, I don't want to like this is total like humble bragging or looking at gift horse in the mouth like for the second year in a row, i've had had some trouble getting the tickets that i wanted which like it's just strange because the first two years i went pre-covid i almost got everything i wanted you know including like big premieres of like yeah. knives out and stuff like that and it seems to have really changed um i don't know if there are fewer press tickets uh overall or or what but um i uh but again this isn't i don't want to sound like i'm complaining i know that it's it's uh, david's just a making a note in case listeners are reading the yeah. reviews and they're like why is yeah. he reviewing this shit i heard these huge movies premiered in toronto why does david yeah. care about uh i don't even know what obscure thing would be playing at tiff um but that's actually that's a good this wasn't what the top of the topic show the the top of the show topic was gonna be but we can call an audible and make this the top sure, of the show topic um from an outsider's perspective meaning someone who is not going to tiff and probably has not been pouring over the schedule in this weird strike delayed year what do you think are the big movies that are premiering at tiff Oh God, I don't know. Partially because my feed has just been nothing but Venice film festival stuff. Right, and right, so right. I'm like, I don't know. Is this stuff playing at TIFF? Probably. Um, I don't know. You got, you guys got a maestro? Um, no, that's what I'm saying. These big things like TIFF. You guys I, got a poor is, things. Part, no, this is okay. Part of it is the strike, I think. But also part of it is that I think TIFF as a festival retracted during COVID. And I don't oh. know that it will ever get to the size that it was in the past. You know, this is, this is the second year that this is the second year in a row that two of the major venues that they used, uh, in past years, they have, they aren't using anymore. Um, so I, I, yeah, I don't know what, uh, I'm, I'm trying to look at like, what are have the re- star vehicles? Yeah. Have they replaced those venues with anything? Cause like to they replaced use a- one of them. Okay. Um, I was thinking like to use a local analogy, like uh, TCM Fest lost the Egyptian, gained a legion, you know. Yeah. Now this, um, they stopped using, no, it's actually three venues because I forgot there's two theaters in once. There was the Winter Garden and the, and now I'm forgetting what it was even called. That was two theaters in one that they stopped using. And they also stopped using what was then called the Ryerson. But ryerson university is no longer called ryerson university because i I don't know if you remember those stories in recent years about like where ned ryerson was canceled sure sure i mean not ned ryerson but um about like um first nations like native peoples in america like finding mass graves at the former schools where they were like yeah so 
Ryerson, like the guy that school was named after, was kind of like the architect of huh. those schools as well. So the the school is not even called Ryerson anymore, and they're not even using the um, that auditorium anymore, which is a blessing and a curse. It was a really cool place to see a movie that I have a lot of good memories of. Um, and also, I had like figured out where the secret hidden bathroom was that there was never a line for. Oh, um, that's gold at a film festival. Yeah, but it's also it was also the furthest flung from the like. Mm. So, so that's like the the cool thing about TIFF now is that like once you're there for the day, you're in this like you know four block radius, and that's all you have to do. You don't have to yeah to hike all over uh, creation. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I guess this is all to say. Like, I don't really know what you know. I mean, last year you had the Fablemans premiering at TIFF. You had the Whale. I think did the Whale premiere. No, the Whale premiered at Venice, but it played TIFF. But the Fablemans premiered at, at yeah. TIFF, and I just feel like this year. I mean, there's definitely some cool stuff that I'm looking forward to. But yeah, I, I don't listened know to the preview the episode, big, and like, there was definitely a lot of stuff that perked my ears up. Um, but yeah, I, that's I, that's like for us. I'm saying like yeah. Did any of those sound like a major, like, best picture contender? You right. Know? No, no, I mean, maybe like a holdovers. Um, right. Holdovers is a big one. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. the only one that's kind of coming to mind that I can recall from that episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's still a lot of stuff I'm looking forward to seeing, even if I don't get um, all the tickets that I uh, initially uh asked for it seems like right now i'm i'm really hoping this isn't the case i'm hoping i can find a way to get in right yeah. now the biggest one that i want to see that it looks like i'm gonna miss is perfect days the vim vendors i just oh, have a slot big don't have a slot for it but i've i've reached out to the publicist to ask for a ticket because it's yeah it's it's uh it's out um but i'll keep trying because they like people return tickets and i can get it and then um I was really looking. I'm really looking forward to his three daughters, uh, the new Azazel Jacobs uh, movie. Oh yeah, who's in um, that? Uh, who is in that? It's a good cast. Yeah, I remember reading about it. And uh, let's see. So that one also is a. Uh, uh, it's a possibility. I might not get to see that, but I'm still getting to see. I'm getting. To, I'm, I've got a ticket for the Zone of Interest, which was like my number one. Oh, that's see. good. Yeah. So that's that's cool. Uh, History Daughters is Natasha Leone, Elizabeth Olsen, and Carrie Coon. Yeah, that's I mean, pretty. Come on. That's great. Pretty good. And his, I think his last movie was French Exit, which I thought was like I was sad. It kind of like didn't make a big dent or didn't make a big splash, but I loved French Exit. Yeah, I really liked it as well. Did you for that? I'm trying to. He did the lovers before that, which is not bad. The lovers is that he did Terry, which I saw. I didn't see Mama's Man, which I think is the one that like kind of made his name. The lovers like the middle aged couples like cheating on each other movie. Yeah, they're each cheating on each other, but then they like fall back in love. Yeah, so then I was it's a like mixed they're on cheating that one. on their like side pieces with yeah. each other. Yeah, <laughs> I was it's a little cute. mixed on that one, but yeah. I did really like French Exit. Yeah. Um. Yeah. All right. Well, let's we saw, turn this episode into another TIFF preview. Yeah, yeah. Um, I saw. I don't know. I this person is probably not famous enough to be a celebrity sighting. Whenever Tyler and I do celebrity sightings again, but um, Natalie and I were at Tony's Darts Away in Burbank. Great place. And yeah, and we were sitting at the bar, and the table behind us was an actress who's in French Exit. Her name's Valerie Mahaffey. Uh, hold on, I haven't pulled up. Yes, Valerie Mahaffey. 
um she's like in french exit when they go to france she's like the american whose apartment they're like yes okay uh yeah uh but you might also know her you probably most people would know her most people who are like us would know her as um george Costanza's girlfriend who pronounces paper paper mache <laughs> right. and calls his doorman his doorman sam samuel um, <laughs> anyway so we're sitting in the bar and i was like oh shit like a tonelli i was like oh shit that valerie mahaffey from seinfeld and stuff and, and from french exit uh and um uh and I didn't want to like say she was like having she was like with friends, but like so the like we're getting ready, we're like to, we're putting our jackets on. This was what last went last winter. We're like putting our jackets and coats on or whatever. And I just say, like, by the way, you were great in French exit. And she and her friends went like, Oh <laughs> like, I, guess, I mean, yeah, how often is she gonna get recognized? Yeah, I mean, if if anything, it's probably for Seinfeld, which Natalie yeah. was like we love you know, we loved you on Seinfeld too. But like, um yeah, yeah, she like she was clearly like so happy that that's awesome. I, uh, recognized her from that, and yeah, we had a little chat about how like uh, like I just said, like it's a it's a shame that more people didn't like see that movie because I really dug it. Okay, totally. So that's it. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I'm all yeah. You're right. I almost did turn this into a like because when at the time that we did the Tyler and I did the. Tiff preview last yeah. week. I hadn't selected my tickets. Now I've selected them. I still have some feelers out, but now I have a better idea of what it looks like. So I do want to just talk about like what I'm going to see. But no, we'll do. We'll, there's a whole. I'm there's doing a, a whole, whole future to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, let me tell you real quick about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Um, I use them each and every day of my life. Um, I'm torn between like, uh, I listened to a couple things today that I really want to talk about that couldn't be more different. Um, and like out of nowhere, out of left field, <laughs> um, very underground black metal band I'd never heard of called Grave Pilgrim. And they had an album sure. called the bigotry. Their album is called the bigotry of purpose. And, uh, it's really like good, like raw, like folk black metal. I really loved it. But then I also liked the new EP from rapper Smoke Dizza and uh, producer um, um, Flying Lotus called Flying Objects. That's also very good. Um, I haven't talked a lot about rap this year because I haven't liked as much this year, but I think that could just be be me. Terrible year for rap. Everybody said I I don't know if they are. I think I'm just getting old. but they both albums uh, or the album and the EP both sound great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that low, low price and no shipping charge. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Scott, we're back. Hello. And uh, longtime loyal listeners have already noticed that this is 
it's been 10 episodes since we talked about the films of Michael Snow, right? That was the last one. Yes. Um, uh, Oh no, it's actually hasn't, it's been 20 episodes. That's, that's true. We had a whole, I was going to say, it felt like a while ago, but yeah, yeah. I screwed up the whole thing. It's been 20 episodes because every 10 episodes we do a profile unless that the number of the episode is evenly divisible by 50. And then we do just a fun thing, which was me and Natalie going to Tyler's, uh, uh, hospital room and and shooting the shit with him there um so that means we're back to the 10 every 10 episode track we're back on track and we are ready to talk about the uh life and career of the late kenneth anger um yes. uh, oh your mic just the went ripe out. old age of You're, 90 oh, something yeah um yeah definitely someone i had like with Michael Snow, someone I was like aware of, but had not actually seen any of his work until Damn. he passed away. Um, that seems to be a trend lately because it was the same with Strahl uh, Houlet for me. I'd never seen any of them uh, before they passed away. So the trend yeah, is um, people you haven't seen and who are obscure to our entire listener base. The key. This is the key to the current profile they, episodes. Uh, are they obscure to our listener base? Like I, I don't know. I can't speak. For I our feel listeners. like. I feel like Battleship Pretension listeners are people who, like me, at least are aware of Kenneth Anger or Michael Snow and Straub Whitley, but maybe haven't seen them. I guess it's the haven't seen them part that I'm... Yeah, but now we have seen them and we can talk to you about them. Um, although I will admit I didn't go very far beyond the Magic Lantern cycle, the the sort of main, like the core, like 10 films that he's best known for, um, and then a 2002 film that's on that Blu-ray set as a as a special feature that I also. Well, I guess watched. I'll be holding up the back half of this episode then. Yeah, um, I don't know what's going on with your mic. You're like in or out, or like oh. I don't know. That's strange. It's oh, now uh, you're back. Now you're back. Huh? All right. I'll have to look into that because I'm not getting any. It's a temperamental mic, but it usually yeah. like there's a little red indicator if it's connected or not, and uh, it's shown full connection this whole time. Uh, all right. So, um. Kenneth Anger, uh, I guess I want to call him an Angelino, but um, let's say he's a Southland native. He was born in Santa Monica, uh, although he would sometimes claim to have been born in Beverly Hills. Yeah. You cannot trust his backstory. That's the key first part of all this. Yeah, yeah. He he made up a lot of things about himself and about other people. I mean, the, before I even knew what his films were, the thing I most knew about Kenneth Anger was Hollywood Babylon, yeah. uh, a book in which he basically just made up a bunch of salacious rumors about about uh, movie stars. Um, yeah. uh, and uh, but he was yeah he would do the same for for himself. He um, at various points claimed to. Uh, be from Santa Monica or from Beverly Hills. He also like changed his name to anger from Engelmeyer, but apparently would get, uh, uh, belligerent when, uh, interviewers asked yeah. him about that. <laughs> um, uh, like that, there was one quote in an interview. It was like, it says anger, my birth certificate, and it's probably in your best interest that we leave it there. <laughs> yeah. I think that was in the booklet on the BFI set. Oh, that's um, when I read that. Yeah. <laughs> which was very amusing. Uh, yeah. He also, um, claimed to have been in uh was it william dieterle's the mid a midsummer night's dream it was a whatever the 30s one is which is a really great one. movie yeah. um i've never seen that one 
Oh, it's um, they showed it at TCM Fest one year. That's how I saw it. Um, okay, and like it was the first show of the day, which is a lot to jump into. But um, yeah, it's a really good movie. I cannot speak to whether or not he's in it. Yeah, no one, no one can. It seems doubtful. Uh, yeah, because he like claims- the, the the story was that he like. So the character he's playing is a boy, but his mom dressed him up as a girl to get the role or something like that. It was, I can't remember the exact like confluence of things, but essentially like there's so many layers removed that it'd be impossible to verify or not. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you've got the, uh, uh, the, the, the fluid sexuality, the gender, uh, questioning, uh, at an early role or early age, perhaps if that's true, which it probably isn't. Um, but uh, do you have any other background before we get into the films? Uh, I don't think so. Other than that, I was like, I, I wasn't aware he was as active as he was as a filmmaker so early. Like, I kind of think of him as like a 60s, 70s guy. But the first film we'll talk about is from 1947. And he made films before then that um, he has since destroyed I, I don't like apparently the legend goes that like he just marched in the offices they like held these negatives one day and just like burned them yeah. um right and they're, in front of jonas mikas apparently yeah and they're kind of recurring stories like that throughout his career so he has uh an interesting filmography to try to dig through because so much of it is literally unavailable um he, yeah so but fireworks which he was if we're going with the yeah. facts as we understand them was like 20 years old when he made though. He claimed he was still 17 when he made it. Yeah. Uh, again, he just liked to make up stuff um, uh, about himself, but uh, uh, yeah, fireworks is, is pretty incredible. And um, I think kicks off with there, are, there are kind of two main like uh, uh, paths or threads in his films um which is fetish and the occult sure and so sometimes they overlap but sometimes movies like definitely lean more towards one or the other and fireworks definitely is more of a uh fetish film uh but it's also very interesting to think about a film that came a clearly homoerotic film that came out of uh, a, a a time when um there was even more this even it, it's an understatement to even say there's discrimination. It was like against the law to yeah. to 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 be gay, um, and you can see that in the way the film. I think the the violence the film culminates in. Um, totally. I, I think probably comes from that 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 tension building and the and and the fact that there's no uh, legal you know safe release at this time. Yeah, for sure. Um, I I wasn't surprised to hear he's influenced by uh, Jacques Cocteau's, uh, no, Jean Cocteau's Blood of a Poet, um, because it deals with a lot of that same kind of like dreamlike imagery and sort of like constructed sets and someone moving through kind of a dream space. Um, and he kind of summarized it in... I can't remember if I read this in the booklet or on Wikipedia, but like that it summed up all his feelings about being 17 and the Navy and just kind of the general homosexual culture at the time, which it does feel even abstractly like it's um, kind of on the fringes and kind of something done uh, secretly and somewhat um, illicitly, but without being 
explicit exactly like it is definitely erotic but it's not sexually explicit if you know what i mean like yeah there, which i was a longing there without it being like showing like you know people going at it yeah which given that i had read the stories about how like he had to face like obscenity charges and yeah. stuff like that like i was expecting something more explicit natural but it's all just very suggestive and and lots of shirtless men and rippling rippling muscles um but then you know there's so this is one that's been longest since i've watched but there's like even before there's literal like human violence there is still power there's like hammer strikes or whatever like am i or is some shoveling i can't remember the exact uh shots yeah. i'm thinking of uh but then it does culminate in uh, um pretty bloody stuff <laughs> surprisingly gory stuff yeah. yeah uh i hate to keep saying this but your mic is like all over the place <laughs> oh, God. i don't know what to do about it yeah uh <laughs> uh, Scott is fiddling, not hearing anything. So I don't know what he's working on. I mean, I fiddled. I don't know. Now, I mean, now it's coming through strong. Hopefully it stays that way. I hope so too. Uh, so yeah, that's fireworks. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on fireworks. Uh, no, I mean, it, I was just pretty struck and impressed with it pretty immediately. And, um, it really announced a vision of his career that I was, I think more on board with than some other stuff that will come up as his career develops. Oh. Um, but the kind of like tapping into the surrealist culture of the early 20th century was very cool to me. And um, just even reading about the production of it, that it was like, he just like enrolled his friends in, from the Navy and just kind of like shot it in either his own house or a house that he had access mm -hmm. to again mythologies about it vary yeah. um but which seems like it, it really holds like a lot of the energy of a young person's filmmaking without seeing seeming like overly impressed with itself it's like curious and daring and adventurous um but it doesn't have any of the like self-satisfaction that I feel like a lot of young filmmakers have. And so, you know, I, it, it's like clear that he made it 20, then 17, but at any rate, like to make something like this at 20, that is this like mm -hmm. out there is, is very cool. Uh, yeah. Um, I, I should say the, I, at the beginning of this, uh, I was talking about the other, like Michael Snow and Straubwille. I'm like, I was really blown away by a lot of that stuff. Um, but I think I love Kenneth Anker's movies. I, I think he's, uh, he's made quite an impression on oh, me. Yeah, and, same. and that, that BFI, um, disc, uh, or set, uh, was a, a godsend. Yeah. I mean, people uh, who have been tracing these episodes know that I wasn't as into the Strabhule and then, um, wavelength was the only one of the Michael Snow ones. I was like, okay, this is really seriously one of the best things I've seen. There were several, um, in the Kenneth Anger, kind of stuff i went through that made a huge impression i mean and fireworks is prime among them uh yeah so then the next one chronologically on the set and like the longest movie that i watched i think is like 40 minutes uh i got one that's 45 to watch out. okay okay um yeah so he he worked in short film uh uh and one of the shortest is puce moment which yeah uh my understanding it was a um 
he had planned for a longer film called Puce Women. Yeah. This was this ended up being the only uh uh section of it he was able to actually produce and, and made Puce Moment, which is uh uh six minutes of a um of a a woman sort of like getting dressed is that what it yeah is? basically that, did yeah. you listen to the commentary tracks for any of these at all no i, sh- I should have <laughs> yeah so amusingly i didn't get through quite all of them but amusingly this one ends with him being like and then nobody would pay for the rest of this movie <laughs> and just like over um so yeah I, I would have been curious to see what else he would have done because i i really love this one as well um this it's kind of engagement with 1920s culture so he's shoot now i can't remember but some relative of his was a costume designer for like the silent era and so a lot of these gowns were drawn from like wardrobe from like clara bow films and stuff like that like film stuff that silent actresses would have worn which also explains like the weird color patterns of them that it's like these slightly exaggerated unreal colors that probably looked good in black and white but which in color just feel like almost kind of uh gaudy but you know in the context of a kenneth anger film where like the uh excessiveness is part of the point of them it's really mesmerizing to watch them being gradually taken off the rack one by one mm-hmm. um a uh a, a through line in his career uh that we should probably talk about uh is that he overlapped with a lot of other artists you'll you'll there, there are some other uh people of note who who pop up either in his movies or were uh involved in them so the cinematographer of puce moment was curtis harrington who uh also appears in a later film but he would have gone to direct um a lot of films i unfortunately uh haven't seen but but what i do know is that later in his career in in the 70s he directed two of the like quintessential uh grand dame guignol movies the uh, mm. uh those those horror movies where former like famous women uh, are now uh uh relegated to being the lead in right and uh, so he did whoever slew auntie rue um uh with shelly winters and what's the matter with helen which is shelly winters and debbie reynolds uh, oh, wow. which are yeah two of two of the biggest examples of of uh that uh very interesting subgenre of movies uh anyway but yeah curtis harrington uh is, is also i think he he appears in one of the later ones as well yeah I, I think he shot a couple of these but yeah and then the woman kind of at the center of this is uh yvonne marquis um whom anger cast because she kind of had the sensation of those silent stars and that definitely comes across um there is a sense in which the film, I mean, even in 1949 feels like it's alluding to a slightly earlier era, which I think is also like something that uh, recurs throughout his filmography. Like fireworks is fairly contemporary to when it was shot. I mean, you know, it was premiered in 1949, but in the commentary you talk about shooting it as early as at least 1942. So it was like very much during the war. Mm. Um, but a lot of his films are referring to kind of like, past things either like the fifties or even earlier than that. Um, and this is very much harkening back to like a sensation of the silent era. Uh, so moving forward from here, we get kind of like dicey between chronologies yeah, of when the movies were actually released. Cause IMDb 
often has things much later or much earlier than the BFI set that we both watched through uh, has. So I'm not really sure what you want to to do next. I mean, uh, I'm kind of using the Wikipedia list to jump off of, which has Rapids Moon next. So that's okay. Me. But the thing is, because, yeah, I'm also looking at that. But um, my my thing with that, though, is the BFI set has the 1971 and 1979 versions. And my understanding is the Rabbit's Moon 1950 version is the same cut as the 79 version, but a but different music different soundtrack. Yeah. So I don't know. I watched the 79. I don't know what music originally soundtracked the 1950 Rabbit's Moon. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't either, but um... the, yeah, the 1979 one is kind of like, you would call it like, rockabilly or horror billy type of like uh spook rock type of thing and it's and it's uh uh there's a sense of humor um and fun to it well that's true did you watch the 71 one as well oh, that i was gonna say is i was it, the 71 one which i also uh uh thought was beautiful was i didn't find it like I mean, there's some funny stuff, but by yeah. not being sped up and by drawing things out and having more shots of the the character sort of looking longingly at the moon, I, I felt there was something like tragic. There was a sadness mm, to, the, to the longer cut, which is, by the longer, I mean, it's 16 minutes instead of yeah. seven minutes. Uh, what was your, did you, did, did you notice, did you feel they were, they were that different? Um, I guess I, I mean, I definitely felt they were different, but I hadn't really thought of like, that kind of deeper emotional level to it. I, I think I liked the earlier one more mainly because it was playing music that I tend to like a little bit more. Um, but, and it just has, you know, by the earlier one, you mean the shorter one? No, sorry. The I mean, longer, yeah. See, the 1971 is... version, the 16, the 16 minute version. I preferred a little bit yeah. because it had, um, more music. I kind of dug, um, but I mean, in either version, I still thought this was a really, interesting effort i mean it's kind of like uh, 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 in going through the set i was struck by that feeling that you sometimes get when you watch like mid-century stuff of like oh this is what like the simpsons was making fun of when ever they had like an art film parody is like like the first time i watched persona i had the same sensation of like okay i'm loving this but also i see now what everyone was making fun of at the time yeah um, for me it was um um Last year, Marion Bod, like, oh, totally. When you've got two characters talking to one another, but facing different directions, but speaking in like flat affect, I was like, oh, that's what every like yeah. fucking Animaniacs parody of yeah. <laughs> French film was. Um, so this has, this is a little bit of that because it's like there's a clown like longing for the moon in a hand made forest and a rabbit pops up from time to time. Um, so it's very like kind of archetypical, um, avant garde filmmaking, but it's still like really beautifully made and um is all shot either with like a blue filter or i can't remember if it was this one it was no it was uh Udo Artifest, which was um a film that he shot on color stock but in a blue filter i can't so i can't remember what the process was for this but in any event it appears like it's all blue tinted and has this kind of like animated moon that keeps attacking the clown and the forest is all completely handmade he talked about some of the commentary too where like even the leaves on the ground were hand cut so it's this really extensively um, constructed environment that's becomes kind of hypnotizing as it kind of repeats this image of the clown, like reaching towards the moon. Yeah. 
Yeah, that, uh, I, w- I was um, very much struck by how much work clearly went into to to this, to the yeah. the, the set, the production design, the costumes, the makeup. Uh, the clown is uh, whose name I'm reading is Pierrot. I don't think they call. I don't. There's no dialogue. In there's this, yeah. This there's so, no dialogue or even like intertitles. Um, but like his makeup and then the uh, the guy who. Uh, dances a jig and throws a sword over his head. I don't know <laughs> yeah. what to call these people. Like, I know. Uh, they're, uh, uh, it's very, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Meticulous. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, but in a way that is not like, that is ultimately beautiful in, in the way of like, it's, it's artificial, but beautiful in the way of like a classic film or, or classic like stage production. Uh, and so like his as much as he was like uh clearly iconoclastic his uh, uh as we've already discussed his like obsession with or or fondness for uh sort of old hollywood glamour yeah uh, co- comes through in in yeah more more of these films than than just puce moment or whatever yeah um can we move on to oh, to artifice? Let's do it. Uh, because I found this so transfixing and so beautiful. Uh, it's just a um, it's it's a woman. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to. I was trying to look at what because the, like they're actual fountains, like famous fountains somewhere. Uh, but it's just a, a woman, like you said, blue stock, um, walking around these fountains, and uh, she's moving very gracefully and there's constant shots of water in the i mean i say in the moonlight i'm sure it was darkness and like right or artificial light but um reflections over moving water or, or drops of water through the air uh and um sort of like dissolves and stuff like that i i i found the thing just like so trance inducing <laughs> yeah absolutely uh, it, was, it was one of my favorites yeah i mean it uses as a soundtrack for valdi's um four seasons and um so yeah this was shot at the at a location of a real fountain that's in but clicking on the thing uh in italy near rome um and apparently he got uh linked up uh, with the a- villa d'est which yeah. i think means east villa <laughs> let's go i guess it's um, in tivoli the uh, main actress um carmilla let's see salva torelli um he met through federico fellini who uh he talked about the, the commentary that like he was like fellini knew all the weirdos in uh italy so if i wanted a little person or a bearded lady or strong man or whatever i'd talk to fellini <laughs> and so this is the woman he said is like three and a half feet tall which landed a greater sense of scale to uh the fountains than he might have gotten with uh i don't know taller actress let's say um and yeah it's weirdly transfixing and has like even though this comes after rabbit's moon um the stock feels more degraded and that might just be like it just wasn't stored under as well good of conditions or whatever um but i think that sense of degradation kind of contributes to the beauty of the film where it feels a little ethereal a little out of reach um and much more abstract than 
you know, Rabbit's Moon is fantastical, but I don't think it's as abstract as this one. Yeah. Uh, but uh, thus, at least for the time, ends his European period. Um, and he comes back to California after his mother dies, right? Oh, I didn't know about the mother dies angle. Yeah, I think that's why he left Europe and came back to California and, and um, sort of got in. Because now we're getting into... Uh, well, it's still like pre it's still pre like hippie times, which is, it's so fascinating to think about like, um, how much the stuff that he made in the fifties looks like the sixties. Totally. Well, I mean, this is like, I mean, that's literally what Alvin Garden means is like kind of at the front of or right. before right. it becomes fashionable is like so much of what he was doing would become part of, if not the mainstream, at least like a portion of filmmaking that, Excess is a wider audience, um, but he was just way out ahead of it. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, inauguration of the Pleasure Dome, it, it was a tougher hang for me, maybe, but it's definitely like for 1953, 54, it's way out there. So, um, yeah, I I loved it because I think I like occult stuff maybe more than you. I think do, so, yeah. <laughs> as, a, as, a, as a metalhead. Um, <laughs> but yeah, this is him getting into the occult stuff he uh, uh in real life he had attended a party a costume party that was called come as your madness yeah um and he was inspired by that to make a sort of film version of that uh and that's what inauguration of the of the pleasure dome is uh now the the um the version that's on the bfi uh set that that we watched is um was restored in 1993 and uh the music used Leos Janicek's glagolithic mass or glagolithic mass um, was Anger's original. The first time he showed it, he used it with that. And then it had been showed, I guess, without that. And sort of yeah. the, the BFI restoration restored that music. And um, we've talked about music a little bit, but it's, it's a huge part of, um, of his uh, approach. And, and he clearly is very, um, uh clear about what music he selects uh um you know we t- we talked about how for me rabbit's moon the two the long and short rabbit's moon are like so vastly different in 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 tone be- and largely because of the music not only because of the music but largely because of it uh and inauguration of the pleasure dome i think it's like it's i think he i mean maybe he i don't know if he did there was a commentary on this one that i should have listened to but uh it seemed like it was made to be set to the music that it's set to. Um, and, uh, I think this was in this journey of watching these movies chronologically. This is the first one that really struck me of like, Oh, cause Oda artifice has beautiful music too with Vivaldi. Um, but this really struck me like this is, there's a, there's an intentionality to the, to the music. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I will say like on a pure craft level, this is a huge leap forward for him. Um, and is much more like, as much as I, I think, you know, like I said, I kind of prefer fireworks and the uh, energy that comes with it, but he's doing so much more with inauguration of the pleasure dome that suggests a greater capacity for talent than he would maybe be able to get funding for to that point. And I know he's struggled with, I mean, as with every avant-garde artists struggles with funding their whole career, but there's stuff in this that's like really adventurous as far as the intersection between costuming and set design and um, editing patterns. You know, there's dissolves that go kind of between each other. That's very unusual. 
And so even if the content of this was not as much my speed, um, I was pretty taken with the achievement at hand. And yeah, I mean, the music's part of it. I mean, really, it's impressive that he stuck with this kind of approach throughout his whole career of essentially making silent films that he was able to select the score for, you know, I mean, most people who made silent films in their era were kind of stuck with the local piano player as their accompaniment, mm-hmm. um, Charlie Chaplin aside, but um, anger was able to, you know, through the magic of sync sound, select his own soundtrack, but really right up until the end, he was deciding what that would be. And the marriage between the two does feel more purposeful here in a way that's hard to put my finger on, but which just kind of goes hand in hand with the wider achievement of the film. Uh, I was going to say something about that and I forgot what it was. Ter- terrific. But uh, yeah, this, I mean, I'm just happy that we're really into the, uh, the occult stuff. Um, <laughs> but then, but then we take a break from the occult stuff and we, and we, and we steer hard back into the fetishism uh, right with, uh, with Scorpio rising. Yeah. So this is far and away my favorite of all the kind of anger films I saw, which is nothing to diminish the rest of them only to say that like, well, partially this is like completely in my wheelhouse, which is like people expressing their fetishes and eroticism on screen all about it. I, I uh, you know, we've talked about like kind of the Puritan streak of modern film yeah. going yeah. in general, but uh, even well before that, you know, there's often the tag against filmmakers of like, well, it's just the director getting off on whatever's on screen. And I'm like, Yes, I want to see that. <laughs> I, I I like it when directors are that open about uh, anything that gets them off, whether it's mm-hmm. like action or sex or violence or whatever, like id thing is at their core. That is very, very cool to me. Um, so seeing this, which is so enamored of biker culture of the 50s and um, just kind of taking that in completely and which has a soundtrack of just like, 50s pop pitch which i love already um all the the songs are like songs i listen to regularly so i like to hear them (laughs) set so perfectly to a film like this was a joy in and of itself and also that they're like kind of in conversation with the material on the film you know you get stuff like um what's the one that really stood out uh well blue velvet which of course is like david lynch would kind of repurpose later on but which here is just like set to like bikers dressing themselves and kind of like speaks to the inherent fetishization of the biker culture even before um you know gay culture kind of took it over in itself and kind of reclaimed or kind of claimed in the first place the kind of leather look for its own purposes it was kind of this was really identifying that there was an erotic component to it whether or not the bikers themselves were owning up to it you know they you don't dress yourselves that way um accidentally the the point was to make themselves appealing um to another person and uh anger just latched onto the homosexual nature or potential of it rather um and then for it to transform into like taking on I guess not only like the homoerotic nature of it, which ended up being kind of like accidental, you know, that he have that big kind of party scene that Virgil and orgy where like all the guys are kind of like pouring stuff on each other while they're like naked. Mm-hmm. Um, that ended up because the, 
the bikers didn't want their girlfriends in the movie, which is like interesting pivot, but okay. Uh, um, but like totally works with what the yeah. film is aiming for. Go ahead. I was going to say, here's this is we, we finally get the male nudity that I was expecting from fireworks. Totally. Uh, yeah. Uh, I didn't mean to cut you off, but you mentioned blue velvet. Um, I, uh, uh, what else you which by the way uh kenneth hanger claimed that blue velvet just happened to be playing on the radio i'm sure i'm sure that's not true but uh yeah uh blue velvet obviously um david lynch would have been aware of this the nazi imagery uh, uh the nazi iconography mixed with the biker culture yeah. um comes up later in roger corman's the wild angels um i thought more recently of amanda kramer's please baby please from last year which has a totally. lot of like sexual uh, leather and biker culture and it's just watching scorpio rising was like discovering like the legend that made a whole map make sense like i was like oh, this movie is massively influential like we've seen this so many other things like you were saying about like the parodies of like art films uh with uh with rabbit's moon like this 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 movie has clearly echoed uh throughout uh all of the film history since yeah big time and i was, I was talking about this with a friend recently that like and i know there are some segmented listeners out there that are gonna lambast me for this but one of the reasons that i've never been like a complete martin scorsese devotee is i know at this point a lot of his reference points i know a lot of the films that inspired him and i can't help but watch something like uh raging bull and feel like well this is great but it's not quite as great as rock and brothers which is really referencing or last temptation of christ which is another big favorite of mine but it's like it's also not quite as good as the gospel according to matthew and similarly like i watch the way pop music is used in this and i'm like man this is really taking a dig out of mean streets and goodfellas and a bunch of other stuff it's like it's i still like scorsese don't don't come for me listeners but um seeing the id of where scorsese was inspired and scorsese will own up to this as much as i'm accusing him of um was really informative and like mm. part of the reason the film struck me so much is like, Oh, this is the essence of the thing that was really appealing to me in a lot of what Scorsese was doing is like getting the, um, exciting montage set to like my boyfriend's back or then like, okay. So like halfway through the film, the crystals, he's a rebel hits, which is a great song. I totally love it. But then it's intercut the biker stuff with like Jesus walking down the road with the 12 disciples. <laughs> it's yeah. like, see the way he's walked down the street. And it's like Jesus strutting with his 12 disciples. It's like, that's pretty cool. Uh, and that apparently came up by total accident. Anger claims at least that, uh, this film, which was a like silent era, Jesus film was supposed to go to a church, but accidentally got delivered to his doorstep. And he's yeah. just like, oh, wow. well, this will fit with Scorpio's rising again, as with anything with anger, who knows how true it is, but like, yeah. it does kind of work on a very instinctive level that I can't totally explain, except to say that like, there's a slight religious adulation to the way he films the biker stuff that then kind of folds into the Nazi imagery. And the just kind of the general, um, like religious fervor that can come ac across with any kind of subculture. Uh, yeah. The film is apparently called the living Bible last journey to Jerusalem. Uh, according sure. to Wikipedia. Uh, 
Well, okay, we can move straight from Scorpio Rising into custom car commandos because they have a lot in lot common in, in terms of being uh, fetishy, vehicular-related um, stuff. I he, he, So he got the funding from the Ford Foundation yeah. to make this movie about... Uh, uh is about cars i guess but it's uh, i guess steering back from scorpio rising there is no nudity in this but it is maybe the most homoerotic thing i've ever seen <laughs> it's just like two guys polishing a car yeah the, the chrome the way the light shines off the chrome i love the way i mean i I feel like I was saying this with Rabbit's Moon, and I don't know how to say it in the right... Like, I feel like when we talk about Kenneth Anger, or when people talk about Kenneth Anger, I think we've been doing it too, we're talking so much about, like, the context, the mise-en-scene, what's in the... Uh, what he's de- depicting, because it was, like, ahead of its time and stuff. Yeah. But he and his collaborators were clearly such just talented filmmakers. The way totally. that... The way that Custom Car Commandos is, is framed and lit is is breathtaking like there's a shot of the interior of a car from outside and the way the light comes in and reflects off of the uh the uh gear shift uh it all like took my breath away it also is so bright that i was like if i saw this in dolby vision i might go blind from how (laughs) 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 from how like just how hot the like the 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 reflections are with that like harsh white light like it's it's beautiful uh and yeah the movie is just two guys working on cars and manipulating engines in ways that is uh really erotic even though they're not it would it could get past censors i guess because they don't actually aren't actually doing anything sexual yeah n- not actually but definitely implied and yeah this was another one that was supposed to be a much longer um i don't know film i guess um and he talked about in the commentary that like commandos was chosen for a reason that there were supposed to be multiple cars and multiple commandos but ultimately they were only able to film um the one but uh yeah i i was also very taken with this on a very just immediate pleasure level of like it's cool to see good looking people polish good looking cars uh yeah okay so um now we're we're steering right back into the occult, pretty far back into the occult. Oh yeah, uh, with invocation of my demon brother, which uh, has a whole lot of these like um, connections. Because um, at, at some point in here, um, he became involved with Anton Levey, um, the head of the you know whatever Church of Satan. Satan. Yeah. Uh, um, also, uh, Manson family associate and future murderer Bobby Bosile. Yeah. Uh, is in this one and then it continues to work with them, uh, uh, later as well. But, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm giving a lot of, uh, a lot of background, but, uh, what do you have to say about this movie? I think you've watched it more recently than I have. Yeah, I mean, it's also another one that's, you know, um, tough to summarize. I, I think even more so than the ones that came before it, because it's a little more uh, jumbled in terms of what it's precisely depicting. But there is a sense of like, so this was made in 1969, or at least 
premiered there and then in some capacity. And it seemed to me to kind of capture that feeling of the late sixties of like, you have these kind of classically all American good looking guys, but in a slightly seedier context, um, this is at least to my memory, the first one to have all out nudity. Is that correct? Am I forgetting something? Well, I mean, Scorpio rising had naked dudes, right? I can't remember if they end up getting nude or if it's just like really close to that. Um, anyway, Uh, anyway, yeah, there's still a sense of like, maybe it's also because the soundtrack is an electronic score that Mick Jagger arranged. And so there, there's a set where Scorpio rising has the kind of classic pop tunes going to it. Um, there's also footage of like, I don't know if it's Vietnam explicitly, but certainly inferred to be of kind of soldiers marching off of helicopters and stuff. You, you get the sense of like that end of the sixties sensation of uh, uh, some sense of the world passing and something very chaotic and very violent and very new replacing it. Um, that is unpredictable and dangerous and very hostile to even the kind of classic Americana that, anger dealt with which was always something he was like kind of attacking but it was also something he slightly embraced um one of the amusing comments i found in one of his commentary tracks is he was like i guess he just wasn't a fan of the beatles because they were like he claimed they ruined pop music american pop music for the rest of the decade um but he you know in spite of the fact that he was constantly challenging norms as we've kind of discussed in earlier films he also had a great affection for that pop music for silent films for kind of the classic americana um but here he seems to capture it all kind of disintegrating and devolving into something really um uncomfortable uh yeah um that's well said i was um looking at who else uh so i guess the movie is about sort of uh bringing a demon forth invocation of my demon brother i should have uh thought of that but uh yeah levey anton levey appears in it um and it says mick jagger appears in it yeah very sure. briefly there's a okay. shot of him at it i mean basically it's like concert footage um okay, okay. and then yeah bobby Bussolo is in it as well um in the commentary track anger seems less concerned with the murdering than like he was like he later copied my tattoo. I really thought that was poor form, <laughs> especially because he has such a beautiful body. It really didn't need the tattoo. <laughs> I was like, this, this is your big concern. Okay. Oh yeah. Go off, man. Um, yeah, but I, I so we, we're near the end of the like main stretch here. Yeah. Um, and I've talked about Anton LaVey, but I haven't talked about Alistair Crowley who died before anger was born, but that he was, who he was obsessed with and, and mm-hmm. a, a lot of the stuff in things like inauguration of the pleasant pleasure dome and invocation of demon brother are are influenced by um uh by alistair crowley and and his sort of uh uh i mean is alistair crowley the first one who said uh do what thou wilt is the whole of the law or something like that oh um, I, I don't know i think yeah that's a that's a that's a saying that is often uh, associated with the Satanist like point of view, uh, okay. hedonism. Uh, but that's where that uh, I think that's uh, Alistair Crowley. And Alistair Crowley was someone who was also uh, very 
shady about his background and and yeah. uh uh and and kind of thing you know, clearly took a lot for that so i didn't I, I didn't want to move on to the end before uh at least mentioning alistair crowley but uh yeah at the end we get kind of uh what i think he saw as his like um uh i don't know if masterpiece is is the the word but his uh his major statement which was lucifer rising which he made for over 10 years yeah i mean there's a sense of like a culmination to it for sure yeah. uh and i i i get it i think lucifer lucifer rising might be my favorite uh of of the films uh the score by the way is by bobby Beausoleil yeah after he was in prison yeah he, he wrote the score from prison after fascinating he, after he murdered someone yeah uh and uh there is a, i've looked it up there is a story here. I, I will not, I'm not going to pretend that while I was watching the movie, I was like really following what the story was Were you. No, I mean, any of these, any story I gleaned from it came from yeah reading up on it later. Most of what I was responding to was like a sensation that the movie is giving me. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but you've got, this is this one was shot it's clearly a big project because you've got like uh on location stuff from different parts of the world you've got, yeah it, you've got, it seems huge yeah marianne faithful is walking around among the the, the pyramids yeah uh, and um yeah there's stuff that's shot uh let's see uh i'm trying to think see if he shot stuff no, he like visited Crowley's mansion, but I don't know if he shot, uh, shot anything there, but, uh, yeah, it's all over the place and it feels very, um, yeah, like you said, culmination, it, it, it feels like there's a lot of like sort of hands up to the sky, like in rabbit's moon and, and, and shots of the sun and stuff. And it, it, it does feel like a, a, a kind of, uh, uh, ecstatic ritual celebration by the end. Yeah, for sure. Um, I unfortunately don't have a lot of insights to add to it other than, yeah, um, it, it, there, it's one that I want to revisit and I have it playing right now, but I, um, I want to keep going back to it as with many of these shorts. Yeah, I, I definitely will do that too. Glean more from it because it, it feels a little bit more than I could take in on one viewing, um, but incorporate so many of the techniques I would say that he had been exploring and past films um in the kind of like elaborate costume design in we haven't really talked about his use of like um superimpositions and kind of layering yeah. images on, on top of each other which i'm always like a gigantic yeah. fan of as like I a mentioned, big tony I scott I, guy but yeah yeah i mentioned dissolves a little bit with oda artifice but yeah that, yeah that didn't go away there yeah that's that's true that's a good point um sorry uh so uh, Luciferizing is based upon the Thelemite concept that mankind had entered a new period known as the Eon of Horus. So now we know what it's about. Of course, we all know the Eon of Horus. Uh, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I mentioned Marian Faithful is is in it. Um, Kenneth Anger, we haven't talked about how like, he's in this and he was in Pleasure Dome and... My demon brother. He's, he, he shows him in a lot of his own movies. Uh, yeah, also fireworks as well. He's the main guy, right? He's the main guy. Yeah. Uh, also Donald Camel, Camel, the, uh, who directed, co-directed performance with Nicholas rogue, um, is, is in this, 
and of course he would go on to make a Tyler and David favorite demon seed, the movie about the smart house who traps and then rapes and impregnates Julie Christie. I don't know if you've ever seen, I have not seen demon seed, but now I, with that description very much want to, it's very, it's very, uh, it's a very good movie. And then he made another movie in the eighties called white of the eye that, uh, I think maybe scream factory put out. That's really cool. But, uh, so yeah, just more of those those connections with people. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, there's. I don't know what else to to say. Well, These movies are hard to describe. Here's honestly. the main question I have: is we reach kind of the end of the BFI disc, um, and I tried to look this up a little bit, but why why do you think this is considered like the Magic Lantern cycle? <laughs> why are oh, these films grouped together? Yeah, I don't know. I know that. I'm glad you brought up the word magic because uh, Anger often used the word magic and spelled it with a K on the end. Right. And that's another thing that he took from Aleister Crowley. That was uh, Aleister Crowley wanted to make sure that his definition of magic was seen as something different than sort of like illusions and showmanship. So he spelled it with a K on the end. And and that's where uh, that's where it comes from. But as far as why it's called the magic lantern cycle, I don't know. It's, you probably have to read a lot of Aleister Crowley and maybe you'd figure it out. Yeah, it seems, I, I don't know. I Some of what I was reading suggested that it was like Kenneth Anger needed money and needed a way to package the work that he had done okay. and yeah. just kind of like grouped the, his extant films into a collection that could be shown together because, I mean, anyone who has any engagement with short films knows they're often at best shuffled to the beginning of uh festival program you know before the main feature maybe in a shorts program collectively that nobody will go see but um generally exhibition for short films is very lacking and so potentially this was a way to at least create a feature program out of it that um people would attend Mm -hmm. and pay for um but yeah other than that i had a very hard time finding much connective tissue that wasn't just like routine auteurist stuff that generally comes up when you collect the filmmakers work together Especially, especially, like I said, like there are, there is some overlap, but I feel like if you could, you could tell someone who didn't know, I think that custom car commandos and invocation of my demon brother were made by different directors. And I think totally they would, they would assume that you were not lying to them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so I, I tried to figure out if there's any meaning to it beyond that, but it did seem kind of just like ad hoc, um, you know, made up in the moment kind of stuff. Yeah, I think it probably, I mean, it, it probably just recommend it, it just. Uh, I can't, my, my vocabulary is failing um, as I get older. Uh, it encapsulates um, the uh, most prolific and most the, the years that he was most. Uh, celebrated i guess well and most active i mean just looking at kind of the wikipedia list that you and i are going off of you know he had a series of films after lucifer rising or rather during lucifer rising that were announced but never produced and then his next produced film was in the year 2000 um so lucifer rising like completes in 1980 and then at least according to his wikipedia list there's nothing else until 2000 which is insane um and I don't know what he was living on between those two points, maybe just showing the magic lantern cycle. But um, I did see some of the films he made after this point. So if, if you want to move on, I can uh, briefly discuss those. 
Yeah, let's move on. Like I said, I did watch the one the the main right, one yeah. to hang. Uh, but you watched. I'm guessing don't smoke that cigarette. I did. Um, don't smoke that cigarette is his longest film at a staggering 45 minutes. Um, well, you get through it. I know. It, I. I say this both as a joke and because it's literally true. It took me two viewings um, <laughs> just because of like how it fit in my schedule kind of thing. Yeah. Um, it's fine. It's um, so apparently Kenneth Anger, which is unusual for the generation he belonged to was not a smoker and kind of recognized early on the dangers of smoking. And so as the title implies um, it's about both the culture of smoking and the dangers of it. Um, so it takes a lot of footage from sitcoms and cigarette advertisements of the 1940s and 50s and 60s, and then contrasts those with um, kind of the growing uh, publicization of the dangers of smoking. So you get like snippets of doctors saying like, we're noticing an uptick in lung cancer patients um, due to cigarette smoking maybe watch out for that kind of stuff um and into some very like those of us who had to endure high school health class even though we were never in danger of ever taking up anything remotely outside of what was prescribed by our parents <laughs> i'm speaking for myself here um just like really horrifying stuff with the effects of smoking which like i hated during health classes like i'm not gonna do any shit just don't show me another like deteriorated liver i can't take anymore um <laughs> so the film contrasts like those two things of like just how prevalent cigarette advertising was for a period of american history you've got uh you've got some gen z in you when, when i do have a little to, bit gen z in me to, uh, yeah cigarettes every time because it's first it was jenna the jenna ortega clip went viral of her having a cigarette and now it's timothy chalamet i don't know if you saw that yeah um of him having a cigarette and and american gen z people just like disgusted and freaked out and i don't i mostly just keep it my reaction to myself because on the one <laughs> hand like yeah cigarettes are, are awful for you i wish i had never smoked no one should smoke they're really bad and it's a waste of money and time and everything but also like they sound like such fucking dorks <laughs> yeah that's kind of why i stay out of it too because like as you kind of figure out when you're watching this film is like, yeah, there's a reason everyone was smoking. It does look cool. And they show like <laughs> clips of like old forties films of like movie stars smoking. It's like, yeah, it, it does look cool. There's no getting around it. Um, but it is kind of an interesting reflection on, cause by 2000, I mean, I was, I have memories of this period of like going to restaurants in the nineties and like being asked if we were us in the smoking or non-smoking section. And there was kind of an inflection point around this period of like cigarette acceptance in mainstream American culture. And so the film comes out at an interesting point, whether it needed 45 minutes to kind of elaborate on that point, debatable it, it kind of goes on and on and regurgitates the same thing over and over but it is interesting to think about a period in american history where um it, i mean even goes back as far as like the idea that cigarettes were at most a vice you know like it gets into that period and you see this for people who watch mad men where like there was a turn where like okay everyone recognizes a danger to smoking so you get like the doctors that can recommend like the okay cigarettes but seeing the period of advertising from before then when it was like just like yeah this thing we all do this is the best one smoke some um was also really interesting too um so yeah from there you get the man we want to hang which i know you saw and which i was not terribly into yeah i liked the the music again um he's very particularly music uh that i was not familiar with the composer is a russian composer named anatoly Liadov. yeah um i liked the music 
a lot. Um, uh, but it is, it was like, it's, it's just a 12 minutes of images of yeah. Crowley, uh, Alistair Crowley's artwork that I think was, um, so he did this for like a, uh, some sort of installation or art show, I think. Um, sure. I don't uh, know. That sounds good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, it didn't feel, I wasn't bored by it, but it's only 12 minutes and the music was good. And of course. Yeah. Paintings are fine. Um, but yeah, I guess, uh, that idea of commissioning something, uh, a film as a tribute to a visual artist from another medium, uh, for an installation feels very Straub Poulet. Um, totally. except when they did it for Cezanne, they used so little of Cezanne's actual artwork <laughs> that the museum rejected it. <laughs> All right. Well, so there's yeah, no danger of that one here. Yeah. Plenty of his artwork on display. Yeah. Um, so yeah, from there, his next film was Anger Sees Red, um, which is a really cool film. Um, loosely, it's like there's kind of a muscled man hanging out, sunbathing. Um, and I, I didn't quite, quite clock this while I was watching it, but Anger himself is kind of like the perspective of the film um, who's kind of watching this guy walk around the park. But it's just like the classic Kenneth Anger very homoerotic, very um, sexually charged images and a lot of really inventive and creative editing on display. Um, so I was really glad to see that. Um, the next one on this list is not available, which I'm very much curious to find. It's called Patriotic Penis. Great name. Yeah, uh, yeah. would love to know what that's all about. Um, but then after that, he made a really interesting film called Mouse Heaven, which is a montage of Mickey Mouse memorabilia that kind of has like this jazzy background music to it um that like I, I mean i guess you could say it's a reflection on american consumerism or like disney influenced media or whatever else um but it's also just like really cool to watch um him play around with these objects and kind of repurpose them in kind of a slightly overwhelming and uh grotesque way of just seeing these different images of mickey just kind of like I don't know, hurled at the viewer again and again and again. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, I have less to say, even less than that, to say about My Surfing Lucifer, which is like a surf film, I guess. It's like, <laughs> this guy's surfing around. All right, that's uh, all I gleaned from it. Um, this is no sound to it even, um, so hard to really oh, hang wow. your hat onto much. Um, but at four minutes, you know, it's it's an amusing watch. Uh yeah. Less amusing is his 35-minute film, Ick Will, which is a montage of Nazi youth propaganda films, um, which uh, even more so than Don't Smoke That Cigarette goes on and on about making the same point of displaying what Nazi uh, propaganda was all about. It does have, which I don't think I've ever seen before, uh, some footage of uh, Adolf Hitler hosting a rally and seeming like entirely bored with the proceedings, which at least is like unusual. Yeah, um, he's yeah. just kind of like loosely giving the like hail salute to the crowd and the crowd's like overwhelmingly like thrilled to see him at all. Um, but it's mostly just kind of like, yeah, and, and, uh, Nazism was quite a sensation and we realized retrospect was bad um, and should have realized more at the time. 
and he sure got a lot of people on board with it. And, um, you know, there's some inventive manipulation of the footage, but not enough that really is kind of worth investing in. It's probably the dullest of all the work that Fizzo saw. Um, His last film, though, Missoni, was really cool. Um, And we talked earlier about um, Custom Cars Commando, whatever word. Yeah, I got the word. Custom Car Commandos. Um, As being like this kind of uh, work on the behest of a larger corporate entity. Missoni is... Um, was commissioned by an Italian designer um, who, you know, Missoni makes very high in clothes. And so the film was commissioned as a two and a half minute piece commissioned essentially probably to sell those clothes, but has like, you can clearly tell he had some money at, at his hand at this. Cause it's got like gorgeous models and nonstop inventive editing. And it's a really, really cool set. If you can track it down, um, it's the only work of his, I think, from this later period. I, I guess I really did like Mouse Heaven, but and Angus is Red, but this one really tapped into that feeling that I was getting from the the Magic Lantern cycle of some really avant garde stuff at play, even if it was at the behest of a larger corporate entity. Yeah. Well, we did it. That's it. Uh, I did want to mention, you know, we, we made mention of Hollywood Babylon. I just yeah. want to mention something that I didn't know until I saw it on the Wikipedia page. So he wrote Hollywood Babylon and Hollywood Babylon 2. He wrote Hollywood Babylon 3, but I guess it has a lot of Scientology stuff and was threatened with, like, serious lawsuits. That's what he that. says, at least, yeah. Okay. Uh, but another, I'm going to read straight from the Wikipedia Another book, Hollywood Babylon, It's Back, written by Darwin Porter and Danforth Prince, was published in 2008 and purported to be part three of the Hollywood Babylon series. However, Anger had no involvement with it whatsoever. Indeed, Anger was so upset with the unauthorized work that he used his Thelema magic to curse Porter and Prince. <laughs> <laughs> he shoved them. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. Um, did you read any of Hollywood Babylon? No. I read a little bit of it. I kind of skimmed it. Um it's interesting if a little exhausting it's kind of all written in that kind of like blind item style of like page six reporting or whatever but with names attached so it's like it's exciting for a couple paragraphs and then you're like oh there's a whole book of this and like i kept kind of flipping through and like see if it kind of changed it up as style um it's interesting but you know as has been widely reported by this point you know, not widely credible as far as actual history goes. And so I was kind of hoping it would at least be exciting reading, which it is in fits and spurts. And I think if you read it kind of a chapter at a time, but kind of taking it all in, in a big chunk proved a little exhausting for me. Um, but definitely speaks to the, the sort of excitement he got from silent films. And like, you get the sensation of someone who's very engaged in the details of history, even if, um, as one historian put it, he was essentially like constructing out of mental telepathy because there's like no sources cited for anything he's writing down. <laughs> um, very little like context given to the things. There's just like, here's what happens according to me, I guess. Um, but you can definitely see how it influenced Damon Chazelle's Babylon. Um, that energy is mm. very much in the the reading of it. Uh, cool. I probably won't check it out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I think this was great. Um, you can, of course, find uh, 
I mean, there's no Kenneth Anger reviews at BattleshipRetention.com, but there's other stuff at BattleshipRetention.com, including my other podcast, the one where I met your mother. Check that out. Um, I'm sure Kenneth Anger would have loved it. Uh, for all I know, he was a listener <laughs> up until up until the end there. Absolutely. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, follow me on Twitter. Follow me on Blue Sky if you have Blue Sky. Both are Davy Davy Pretension. I'll be tweet. I'll be updating from Toronto there and, and posting some reviews on the website uh, there. So um, yeah, on Letterbox at David Bax. Uh, I think that's the, the David Battleship Pretension dot com. Uh, Scott, where uh, can people find you? If you want. Uh, on Twitter and Blue Sky, Roll of Tomorrow, and on Letterboxd, where I'm once again trying to at least post more frequently for my own sake. I, I've been kind of going back on like earlier uh, logs I made of films, and I'm always disappointed when I don't have notes up because then I'm like, what did I think of that film? What were the things right. that actually stood out to me? So I'm trying to log more notes, uh, at least for my own sake, and hopefully others get something out of them um should have reviews up on the site soon for a couple more kino lorber discs that i'm reviewing and um possibly some theatrical stuff as well which i should talk to you about off mic cool we'll do that now all right so uh thanks everybody for listening hey we'll get you next time bye